0: Hello and welcome to Popmosis Film, and we are going to talk about film, which is what we do here on Popmosis Film. I am Josiah. I am joined, as always, by Tyler and Paul. So how are you guys doing?
1: Doing well. Doing well. I, uh, you know, we, we watched this movie, which, which just uh, invoked a lot of feelings and um, and thoughts and critique.
2: Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I had a really <laughs> visceral reaction Watching Donnie Darko again, and I'm surprised because I've seen this movie, like, I don't know, probably a few dozen times, and I had, like, a real visceral, like, very moody reaction to it. Uh So, yeah, I, I yeah, but we can <laughs> moody.
0: Dive, dive. Reaction to Donnie Darko? movie. Yeah, Donnie it's Darko, so bizarre. Moody. What?
2: Uh, what? Yeah, but we can dig further this into it. <laughs> <What?
0: laughs> So we are talking about Donnie Darko today, written and directed by Richard Kelly, who, like myself, is a USC guy, so he went to USC. And I realize this, like, I have no actual personal connection or knowledge of him, but uh, he was there in 97, I believe he graduated, and I got there in 2002, so there is not too far off. So I probably, in some connected way, have some connected tissue to knowing someone who knows him. Maybe not close, but... I I I guarantee there's some thread through that I just thought about after the fact just because when I like looked up info about him I'm like oh that's not that far off and makes me feel yeah makes me feel kind of old I'll say that produced by Adam F- Fields Nancy Ju uh Juvovin, Juv- Juvoven Juvanin Juvanin I'm not trying to say her name she is <laughs> it's a tough one to say she's Drew Barrymore's producer so the Drew Bar- Barrymore connection Drew Barrymore Uh, I think he's listed as an executive producer. She, who also played the teacher, she was very significant in getting the finance, at least getting sort of the next level of financing for these guys. Uh, And so her coming in was like big for them. And uh, Sean McCritrick, McCritrick, Gosh, these names are hard for me today, but this one is more my writing, so I apologize to Mr. McKicktrick, who has gone on to produce for Jordan Peele most recently, like Get Out and Us and things like that, but he's had a long career producing. Uh, he started yeah, I think out. He's part of
2: with- Blumhouse now, I think. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But he started out with Richard Kelly. They go back to SC. So they, uh, his, uh, their short, the short film Visceral was produced, um, with Kelly. It was like his. I think it was maybe his graduate thesis film or something at SC, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I've never seen it. But that was kind of their start in the industry going back to that time frame. So, um with a budget of four point five million dollars, I read four point five million dollars in an interview with people that produced it, and I've also read six million dollars, so I'm not a hundred percent sure where it lands, but somewhere between four and a half and six. Um maybe
1: like a second wave of marketing added a million and a half.
0: My, that was my thought. But I wonder, I know that maybe some of the songwrites might have kicked up that budget, which we'll talk about, I think, in a moment here with how kind of the film went. I'm not 100% sure because I'm sure they were – for a film this small, that was probably a big part of the budget – and it uh, it made between I read as low again I read from the producers it made like five hundred thousand dollars, but it probably made between five hundred thousand and a million and a half upon initial release in October of uh, twenty six two thousand one. Where I did see it in the movie theater as I shared with Paul, so I actually saw this in the movie theater at the time, which was uh, uh at the time I was I was joke before kids I could go see movies. Although this was like twenty years ago, which is mind blowing. This was like twenty years ago. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the background info.
2: So, I actually, I discovered... Uh, so, I almost saw it in a the theater. But what happened is... Uh, uh, so, I saw that I was eating a burrito. I was having dinner. And I saw in the newspaper this ad for Donnie Darko. And what's interesting is all it was is like a black background and that white bunny face. So, Frank the Bunny Face. And it really, like, captivated me. And I really was drawn into it. And so, I was like wow, what is this? Uh, and this was like, the internet was still, you know, like, if you go in AOL, it takes like five minutes to load a picture. Like, it was, you know, the internet's not really a thing in the way that it is now. Uh, so, I, I would basically like read, you know, the newspaper about it and stuff like that. And I was like, wow, this is an interesting film. And I circled the date and I was like, oh, I'll watch it on this day. And uh, by the time I was going to watch it, it was was already pulled from the theaters. Uh, at the time, I was I was uh, in, in Berkeley. And, uh, so I, I was bummed out and I really was, but it was stuck in my head and I didn't actually see it until I think maybe a year later or maybe a couple of months later when it came out of DVD from Fox. And, uh, again, the white Frank, the bunny face on the black background really drew me to it. And I'm like, holy shit, that movie's out. So I bought it on DVD and the first time I watched it, it was like it was like a movie that was made specifically for me. Like, it's, it's so bizarre, uh, and so, um, wait, how, how, it really resonated. How were you at that, at that point? Like, five to I, uh, I was 19 or 20. Oh, wait, wait. When I first saw it, I was probably like 20, 21. And so I'm not that, uh, I'm not the same age or similar age as, as uh, Richard Kelly. And so a lot of the things that he referenced, I specifically like remember in my childhood. And Richard and, uh, Kelly,
0: real quick, he was like 25 at the time. So not.
2: Yeah, so not yeah, that far off from our for our age. And uh so and the funny thing is I I read articles about this. Like it it um you know at Sundance, like it had a lot of buzz. Like the 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 script was very um, the script was very ambitious and people were like really into it and they're like wow this guy Richard Kelly, he's like the talk of the town, like let's make this film and they actually want to attach to somebody else, a more experienced director, but he said, no, I want to direct this as I wrote it. I want to direct it. And so there's a lot of buzz going at Sundance and, you know, you know, it was like entertainment Tonight or one of those things. Like, it's like the buzzometer and it's fire or whatever it is. And uh, so during the, during the Sundance, they were trying to find financiers and uh, it was such a mixed reception. In fact, it like bombed. And so nobody uh, ended up financing it. And because, because of that, it, like the movie was kind of festering and it was threatened to uh, go straight to video, um, which at that time is like the death knell for your movie. It's like basically your movies being buried, whereas, you know, movies like this that are kind of more niche would, would actually go to the streaming would probably go to like Hulu or Netflix where it actually find an audience. But back in the day, they didn't really have a way to target something like this where it's more
0: um,
2: abstract. Uh, and just so actually, interrupt
0: real quick, Paul, like to jump on that before you kind of move on, because I feel like where you're going is the if it wasn't released theatrically, if it's like distributed to like HBO, Showtime, or directed to di- Video, that's kind of like a step down. Unlike now, it's not viewed so much as a step down to go straight to streaming. That that kind of difference has gone away. So I think that's a yeah. significant t- for for younger uh, viewers of this show. Listeners might not know that that was definitely like more low class and it would sort of diminish even if it doesn't do well theatrically just the cachet of a theatrical release was a bigger deal then so especially
1: with like and sorry again the like especially (laughs) with the cast that it has as well like drew barrymore was really big at this point you also had um patrick swayze who was like really big and um like you have a lot of supporting casts that are really, really big and established, and Jake Gyllenhaal, which is like really coming into the scene really, really hard. And like, I don't think like was Bubble Boy before this or after this.
2: Uh, I think it was before.
0: I blocked before out them. all memory of Bubble Boy. But yeah, he, he, it was he, before he, he, I know pretty recently he had come off of. Is it uh, what's that movie? October Sky was pretty, mm-hmm. pretty m- nearly before this. So that was a big uh, movie for him, and it, yeah, it was. That's around that time frame.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, the, the reason why it had such a mixed reception at Sundance is because they, the Sundance at the time was very, it's independent films. They're very, like, very niche a subject matter that is usually in the films. And this movie comes in there and has visual effects. Like, it has that Abyss style liquid spear and it has big name actors like Patrick Swayze and Drew Barrymore. Like, it had the clout of like uh, a more commercial film. Yet the subject matter itself was more like indie uh indie film, and so a lot of people tend to were really suspicious of it, like the commercial Hollywood world was trying to intercept you know the indie darlings or whatever, and so a lot of people were really receptive to it, and like, hey, this is not playing by the rules, like this is not right and even if like this movie is like four point five million is like a moderate budget for like a small film like this and what but this movie feels and looks expensive, it looks much more then then it looks more much more expensive than it actually costs and a lot of that has to do with uh, the director of photography is um steven poster who basically is at uh when i was looking at uh, documentaries about this was basically kind of guided richard kelly and how shots are developed um and he basically said you know forget the age difference i know i worked with ridley scott don't worry about this i won't take the film away from you i want to uh you know, bring out your vision. Like I'm not going to take the movie away from you. And he was able to with his connections with Panavision, he was able to get anamorphic lenses, which is something that you usually don't give to first time directors. And so that's why it looks more robust and like it looks more epic than usual. And uh yeah, this whole movie like was filmed in 28 days, which resonates so well with the movie itself. Uh yeah, so and and the funny thing is we we always talk about I know we kind of like talk about Christopher Nolan in the uh, in the periphery, and basically the reason why this movie got uh, the got a theatrical release is because um, he kind of championed it. He screened New uh, Newmarket screened it for Christopher Nolan, and at the time he was really big for Memento. Memento was like a big uh, was a really big deal internationally. Real quick though
0: and, Paul, uh, Memento, the reason that was the, the they were that Memento in this were both at Sundance together. So that's how Nolan oh, saw it. Wow. He saw it at Sundance. Yeah, so he oh, was, was there it? at Sundance. Okay. He was there at Sundance trying to get Memento sold. Uh, in the bedroom was also there Hedwig and the Angry Inch. If you have ever seen that one, so I think it's an important part of the story. Why Donnie Darko couldn't get distribution. I think Paul hit something really important there. But also, just the competition of the caliber of movies it was going against. Sundance, not every year. This is the transition period for Sundance, though, where, for example, it always irks me. This isn't a truly independent film. It's a Hollywood film made by a first-time director, sure, but he's making it through Hollywood channels with Hollywood money. So it's not a true independent film. And I don't want to, I don't mean to downplay or diminish the effort, but it's not, Independent in the way something like Clerks is, or other films. That's just the first one. That's like the super. That's like the uber independent movie. Paranormal Activity, Saw.
1: Yeah, so, so. exactly. That's a no, good example. Saw was pretty Hollywood.
0: So, yeah, because like when they always talk about, oh, my big fat Greek wedding is this the greatest success of independent film? It's like ah, it's not even really an independent film. It was produced by Rita Wilson, Tom Hanks's wife, and all the like. So, <laughs> but that all that yeah. said, all that said, that's that's my caveat here. Where the real crux of what's going on there at Sundance is you just have such a, a, a such a, an amazing array of diverse different films that are really drawing the attention and then you have Donnie Darko who just like the movie itself it's a very uh, divisive movie people love it or people hate it I think a, a lot it's uh that kind of film and then you have that kind of film because i read some things about sundance where people would be like i hated this movie it was my least favorite in the festival and this is like people at the q a and then someone else would be like no it was the best movie at the festival and so you have that whereas then you have memento over here which is i would still think is christopher nolan's best film i love it so much you have memento over here you have in the bedroom over here you have hedwig in the angry inch if you've ever seen that movie it's just some crazy powerful films that are going up against a film that Good or bad, it's 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 a challenging film. It may be difficult to understand. So that's I think a big part of the the context of what's going on there and how sort of everything came together in terms of it getting that distribution.
2: Yeah, and and it's interesting if you if you to, to kind of compare the careers of Christopher Nolan and Richard Kelly, how very different you know, like Christopher Nolan's kind of is kind of like the the darling of Hollywood, you know, and he has the clout to. Say, hey, you know what? During a pandemic, I'm going to release Tenet. You know, like he has that clout with Warner Brothers. And, you know what I mean? And then Richard Kelly uh, has it. And again, I like the guy. I actually met him a couple of times. And I, uh, you know, I love Donnie Darko. It's one of my favorite films of all time. Um, but his career hasn't gone really much anywhere after the box. And uh, which is really kind of sad. And, and you know, for, um, for me but uh yeah i just uh and one thing that we wait <laughs> oh probably for me yeah <laughs> i mean for, for him too i
0: love that the ultimate like, that's just hilarious yeah, I, I know what I, you mean i know what you mean but i gotta give you I, a I time just, I that just, one it, it, it's weird because
2: i feel like personally attached to him because he made like dandy darker feels like there's such a personal film that like got certain things that are very specific to my upbringing and uh, especially, like, the interaction with adults. Because I had, when I grew up, you know, I was a very, well, I mean, everybody can say this, but I was kind of a, a troubled kid. And a lot of times I would try to reach out to adults and they would give me, like, oh, it's part of God's plan. And, uh, you know, uh, they you know, give me these platitudes and it's like I'm trying to find answers. And so there's this, like, this m- main theme of, like, generational divide in the movie that I could really, that really resonates with me.
0: So, one other thing that uh like I, I like that, that uh that I thought was interesting uh going back, just I know that we always uh I don't at least I like to when you hear about the different casting, Jason Schwartzman almost played Donnie Darko but he pulled oh, yeah, out because of it. scheduling. Yeah. So, and it was kind of a late game and and because when he, once he got attached that helped them get kind of the financing because the script was what really grabbed people and the script gotten people's attention. And then, and, and all of a sudden like Richard Kelly was saying that he was getting all these meetings and stuff. Cause he was working like at the assistant, just like I, I read about how he was like, you know, the guy putting out the cheese trays and the coffee kind of thing for celebrities. And he was that guy and he was just, okay, I got to try to make something. So he wrote, the script for this and then it got out there and as paul said but i one of the things that was really interesting when i read that was that jason schwartzman was attached and because it would have definitely been a different take and uh a different performance and obviously a different and one of the other guys is actually i forget which actor he's in phantom planet with sportsman like oh yeah the bully band.
2: the bully with the uh yeah, 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 yeah. mullet the yeah. yeah yeah he's yeah. the lead singer
0: mm-hmm. seth rogan's buddy in that yeah yeah and this
2: is the first role with seth rogan in it and he's like a total dick it's so bizarre his
0: first line is i like boobs sir." Or... this is after freaks and geeks so but it would have been his first feature role like first film role so he he and Fe- freaks and geeks was like his first thing and then this came and it's yeah it's kind of a funny thing is like when you watch even freaks and geeks you're like wow they cast him and yeah it's just like whoa seth Rogen. even as i was watching it again i'm like oh that's that's him yeah and like paul said his first line the
2: <laughs> yeah i like your boobs or and then yeah it's so pretty that's, bizarre. that's
0: that's our, our context and background for the film which is the, uh, the, the i and i was kind of like uh you know sort of crapping on the idea of this as an independent film but it is it is an independent film not in the truest sense of it. And, you know, when you have Drew Barrymore financing your film, I can't think of it as independent. But to me, even uh, this is one of those films that has such an interesting story in, in Genesis and how it got made and how it got financed and, uh or not financed, but, well, financed, yes, but picked up by, you know, thanks to like Christopher Nolan coming in as Batman-like moment and saying, you got to buy this movie and that kind I, of thing. I
2: heard... Even Francis Ford Coppola was interested in it or. uh, Yeah, yeah. at one point,
0: at one point, so basically there was a point where the scripts floating around and I think Paul mentioned this, but Richard Kelly, even though he was a kid, was like, I'm going to direct it. I'm going to direct it. It's kind of like what uh, 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 an even more extreme version of what Matt Damon and Ben Affleck did with Goodwill Hunting, where they're like, we're going to be in this movie. You can't make this without us.
1: They, and, they and the weird thing with away. that was that, like, Ben Affleck had, like, a, like, one thing, he was already, like, in Days uh, and Confused and a couple other movies and kind of had clout and kind of also had, like, a little bit of uh, backing from, like, Kevin Smith especially to be able to direct the movie. And when Kevin Smith was, like, at his highest at this point, they, I mean, you know, they were going to be like, okay, if Kevin Smith's telling me to have him directed, uh, I'll let him direct it with his friend. But, like, and it kind of like the same thing with, yeah, with, like, Richard Kelly. Like, well, if he's... It's like an M. Night Shyamalan like thing like M. Night Shyamalan did some like rewrites and some writing stuff and then made The Sixth Sense and everyone was just like you know when he was able to make the movie they're like well he's just so smart I mean he wrote this whole thing we have to let him direct this and so I think it's kind of like the same situation with Richard Kelly I would assume
0: yeah and I think it was just um I-, I read like things basically that like Francis Ford Coppola and different filmmakers were interested in it and essentially he was like I'm not giving it up I'm not I'm not giving up my sort of baby this is and Mm -hmm. we're going to maintain its integrity and maybe it would have been a 10 or 20 million dollar film instead of a four to to four to six but it was truly the you know the vision he had at least at that budget uh and even like how they kind of got the songs and things with just all this was it was very sort of serendipitous because it was a little bit before 80s nostalgia was really big and so they were just that much more affordable than they would have been not all that much later, just a few years later. Like those songs now, I cannot imagine what, that would probably be the half the budget of that movie. I cannot imagine what they would cost.
2: Yeah, no, that's interesting you bring that up because that's something that it's kind of, is it was ahead of its time. It's one of, it's, I think one of the first movies that kind of tapped into that 80s nostalgia and used the, the kind of like the the DNA of like 80s Spielberg and Twilight Zone and, uh, you know, the 80s kind of aesthetic in its favor, like, and the music. Uh, and, and so it's, it's in a way, it's ahead of its time. It's like, because if you think about it, like when this was made, it was probably 99 or, uh, 80 or uh, 99 or 2000. And, uh, that was only like 12 years from 88. And so usually, like, when nostalgia, it's usually like in 25 or 30 years. Like, if you look at back to the future, the, you know, the 80s were kind of nostalgic for the 50s. Yeah,
0: or like and, you for know? Stranger Things Now kind of thing. Yeah,
2: exactly. And so it was like really ahead of its time by like, I, I think like 10 years or something. Like it's for kind of a, like why half the Zimmerman. movies
0: we talk about are from 1988. We've had like 40 movies. Like half of our movies have been from 1988 for whatever reason. <laughs> like oh, yeah, absolutely. Hard. All these are, yeah, just <laughs> Akira recently. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, where do you guys... There's so much to unpack and we've talked a lot about uh, sort of context for this film, which I think is important and very valid to the discussion. Where do you want to start with the actual, the text of the film? What do you, what do you think, Paul? Like, where do you, I think you're as the passion person here.
2: Start as the, uh, what? I'm sorry, what do you want to start uh, with?
0: A discussion of the film, like the, like, oh, the actual yeah. text. Of the film. I just think I think that I want to, you know, you're yeah, that it's your it's like it's I, like I think, it's, it's it's as if, like, oh, let's talk about Josiah's kids, and uh, I would be the one to do that. So, this movie is that for you in film terms,
2: yeah. I, I just I just basically it's like, how what is your relation to this this film, like, how um, like, do you? Like, how do you feel about the, the 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 cult status of it and how it's grown uh, over time? And uh, yeah, how do you how do you like the the themes of this movie? Because like the thing about this movie is like it's so open to interpretation. Like everybody has their own interpretation, and so like uh, it can be viewed in very different perspectives. And so I think that um, uh, there's no, really no right way to uh, interpret this movie. And you know, I I, I see this movie like. Uh, as an actual work of art, like an actual expression of Richard Kelly, his childhood, himself, like it's, uh, and there's this thing is this movie is very visceral in that in that respect. So, uh, yeah, I mean, what what do you think about the the you know why this movie became a cult classic?
0: Um, wait, where to start with the biggest question ever?
1: I haven't really, I haven't really <laughs> spoken much, and so my whole thing is that. I really like this movie as an angsty teenager, and I haven't seen this movie since, I would say, 2009. I, now, mm-hmm. watching it s- since then, uh, I guess 12 years later, wow, I'm old, stop it, uh, stop it time.
0: And, and you're the young one on the podcast, buddy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, you're the non-elderly one. <laughs> I cannot stand this movie. I uh, It was an oh. absolute chore watching this movie. And unlike everybody else in this world, I think this script is unbelievably horrendous. I think almost every single scene is written so unearnest. Every character sounds so fake and sounds exactly like everybody sounds exactly the same character everybody they all and like they all have the same dialogue vocabulary and everything and it is so except for of course Donnie Darko, where i think that's extremely intentional but like i i this is one of those movies i think would have been so much better with a rewrite <laughs> or somebody else's eyes peering in and being like okay let's let these teenagers sound like teenagers for one second um let's let's let let's let these these side characters maybe not sound like exactly like the same. Like every teacher, but Patrick Swayze, that crazy lady who um like and the parents, like everybody sounds like the exact same character, including um including Jake Gyllenhaal's Hall's sister. Wow, I can't believe I'm forgetting her name. Maggie Maggie, Maggie Gyllenhaal's Hall's character. Like she just The whole time I'm just like, how old is she? I can't figure this out. How is she in high school? Is she not in high school? Why is she living with her parents? What does she do? What is her deal? Is she in college? Is she out of college? Like I don't. What is she? And like um yeah, and like I was asking my my myself all of these questions, and also I couldn't figure out except for the one guy from ER. I couldn't figure out anybody's. While. Yeah, I couldn't figure out what anybody taught. Like, Drew Barrymore was talking about, like, in one scene, she's talking about English. In the second scene, she's talking about, like, theoretics and stuff like that, other weird shit. Like, I, everything just seems so off. And bullies were just, like, hit and miss. I couldn't figure out who am I supposed to like, who am I supposed to dislike. I hate this. I hate this film. I, 100%.
2: Did you watch Donnie Darko, or did you watch George and the Pussycats again? Uh, like, I disagree with every single thing you said. But, uh, yeah, ev- every, every single thing you said, unfortunately, and, oh, no, no, it's fine. You have, you're entitled to your opinion. Um, but yeah, let me, let, let's just, I, let, I need to like uh, unpack what you just said.
0: Well, I think I'm going to kind of contextualize thing and, and bring it to a bit of a middle ground because that's my feeling about this film. I can't, I, I'm more interested. I think I talk so much about the backstory because I find that more interesting to me. Uh, but I'll t- and I'll tell you this though, I I, I don't hate it, but I, I way don't love it either. So, because uh, I'm also impressed by it, understanding the feat of what it is. Of course,
1: so I, I, I will give it credit where credit is due, and I do love the story. <laughs> I just said I just think a rewrite on the on the dialogue is what was needed. Like that that was the issue was the the dialogue was my issue. So if that if that helps.
0: <laughs> so um jumping on to uh the the kind of contextualize it uh i found this movie in a very similar way to paul paul and i were talking about this we were texting back and forth last night about uh sort of how we came across it and normally i'm the one who says like save it for the episode and paul had to say it to me but the way i came across it i i at the time i was uh I would follow Sundance and things like that closely. The big, the big mark, uh, you know, sort of film festival markers. And and Sundance really at that time was the big one. And con and things like that. A few of them that I I would actually actively pay attention to the movies and what movies were coming out and what movies were getting buzz. So I heard about, like I said, most of those films, maybe not all of them at the time, but I definitely heard about this. Because kind of what Paul said, you have this weird sort of sci-fi Hollywood ish independent film. It kind of what genre is, it kind of had that talk, uh, even though, even, even though if I recall correctly, the buzz was a little bit like divisive as well. Uh, and they did, I knew, I think they did do some reshoots post, uh, uh, Sundance as well. So there was some reshoots to uh, after that, once they got a distributor,
1: there's one specific scene where Jake Gyllenhaal does look older than he doesn't in, in the rest of the movie. And I can't remember which okay. scene it was. <laughs> But I was just like, did he just age like a year and a half or two years? (laughs) Sorry.
0: I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I know they did some reshoots post uh, getting the distributor. So uh, that said, the um, way I found it was very similar to Paul. I I don't know if I was eating burrito, but I was sitting in the cafeteria. I was uh, I'd have been a sophomore in college at that time. Not yet at USC. I I hadn't transferred yet. I was uh, still at Penn State Uh, and I remember seeing that ad that Paul described in the newspaper and I had heard about the movie and I'm like, whoa, this is that movie. And I'm pretty sure that they were promoting that it was produced by Drew Barrymore. I think in that ad, I, I, if I might've just been crossing my wires, but I think that's the weirdest way you could promote this movie. Cause she's did like never been kissed and stuff. That was the Drew Barrymore, the, the kind of her comeback was full swing at that point. I think she had just done Charlie, the new Charlie's Angels at that time. I remember Richard Kelly saying that he met with her on the set of Charlie's Angels. So, you know, Drew Barrymore is really, arguably, at the height of her powers in terms of box office draw. And so her championing this really mattered. And even though it's definitely a film outside of her wheelhouse, and I don't think she was very good casting in that role as the English teacher at, by any stretch of the imagination, just not a good fit uh, for that role. It's like Mark Wahlberg in the happening for, you know, the, uh, I want to play a science teacher instead of like a, a Boston thug for once, but it just doesn't work. Yeah. So what I, and then like I said, I saw it in the theater and I liked it, but then I, and I enjoyed it and it made me think and I, I all those things that it does. And then it came back several months later and it really grew quickly on on dvd as this huge cult film so by the the time it's big on dvd i'm now at usc actually from pennsylvania to sc and it's a big deal and everybody loves this movie and they're analyzing it as if it's a stanley kubrick movie and i that was where it kind of hit me that it's like well this wants to be a stanley kubrick movie and it tries really hard but it's not like Stanley Kubrick didn't start at 2001 in the Space Odyssey or The Shining. He worked his way up to that. And I totally credit the ambition of Richard Kelly for wanting to start at 2001, at The Shining level stuff, but it just, it doesn't get there. And I think for me the 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 movie's good it's okay but i also think that there are flaws in it like the logic is 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 very it's 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 actually hard to follow even though it's the time thing it's confusing the significance of the characters and how even within the movie how the the rules of time travel work and you really need to watch the director's cut to even understand that which is a a little bit of a problem as well where it kind of if you've seen the director's cut it gives you a lot of context of the stuff from that book that he has that the lady wrote but you don't really understand it in the theatrical version of the film you don't have the the guidance and then they have like these little snippets of conversation that things and i so that's kind of my take on it that it's it's a it's a good movie it's it's a. I think. I think that, you know, not to discount like Paul and people that love it, because it's just I just didn't attach to it. I just didn't get why people fell in love with it so much, and I do think that some of the like performances aren't great from the cast. I think that Jake Gyllenhaal, for example, is trying almost too hard at times, and like he, it's just it, you know it's. The nature of the character, but it's like he's trying to be Holden Caulfield while he's this '80s kid, and he's a great actor. Like watch Nightcrawler, things like that. And again, I think it's just young people, and I think that maybe that I I want to respect it more than I am that are trying really hard, but not yet masters of their craft, making a film that tries to be a master level film. And I appreciate the ambition again and again and again. But I think it just, it's like built on blocks of great ideas that just maybe doesn't hold up for me. That, And I'm trying not to hate on it too much because I do still like it and I enjoy watching it. Even though it's very different, kind of as Tyler said, watching it much, much later having not watched it in a very long time.
1: I feel like this is like one of those movies, like uh, like the first Clark's movie, where I think when you're younger or uh, in more simplistic times, like the 90s or early 2000s, uh, we gravitate towards and love. And now that we've seen and have access to so much more, uh, film has evolved a lot and storytelling has evolved a lot and changed since then. Like a 90s movie is completely paced and made completely differently than a movie today that we would gravitate towards, um, like, you know, I mean, look at the MCU just alone MCU, every single movie. I mean, if if they were to try to make any of those, like, you know, with practical effects or anything like in the nineties would be completely different films. Everything is made differently now because of technology, because of different ways of us expressing ourselves, especially with the use of internet and instancy and stuff like that. And, uh, so like, a lot of the movies like in the nineties would resonate with us where a lot of people nowadays like you know, Gen Z and stuff like that won't really appreciate. And um, especially for me, I don't really like nineties movies. I know this is, doesn't constitute as one I, as, as a whole. I think the nineties had like, was the worst decade for film. But in my opinion, um, of course there's some great films in it, but I just think if you get everything overall, like, holy crap. Uh, but uh, with, with this movie, again, I, I think it's just, it was a great idea, great concept. I think it needed a stronger director to guide the cast, because I think everybody was casted pretty well. Maybe Drew Barrymore. I, I, I agree with you. I think Drew Barrymore uh, is a phenomenal actor, and I actually really love her, and I actually really loved her as a director. I wish you directed more, because I really love Whippet. Um, I really wish, yeah, like, maybe she played something else, um, or they maybe tweaked her character to sound a little bit more like her. Um but um yeah, I think maybe like a stronger director to tell people, hey, I know how to, I know how to tell an actor, I know how to help an actor with the scene, uh, if needed, uh, to find their character. And I think like, you know, with somebody with a baby character, maybe somebody who's so attached to the story, and maybe somebody who's so highly praised by po- possibly the script, because it sounds like this script was so hot. And it was just like, okay, like, what do we no- what do we do with it? And what, do we- what do we not do with it? It's like one of those big situations. And so anyway, I digress. I, uh, I think there was a lot of potential for this film, uh, and it just, right, I would also say the same thing about most, uh, Night Shyamalan movies, where, like, they're great concepts sometimes, um, like, I don't think The Happening was honestly that bad of a concept, it's just, man, if you have somebody behind the camera who doesn't know how to work with an actor, or how to cast a correct actor, or to have the characters say what they really should say to bring people into a scene, the movie falls apart. And unfortunately this movie to me is like watching the happening. It took me, I watched this movie twice and it took me, I think three hours each time I would to pause and just be like, Oh my God, that scene was exhausting. Cause I want to rewrite it now. I want, I want to personally rewrite that scene. It's that aggravating. Like when you have somebody like Jake hall, who's an amazing actor, when you have people like Patrick Swayze, who was unbelievable, um, like, again, the cast was great, but I just think they needed a director to tell them what to do, or they just weren't right for the roles. Like, I-, I agree with Josiah. Uh I think at one point I was just like, is Jake Gyllenhaal trying to be William Shatner here in this scene? Is he channeling William Shatner? And um, like, I think it's just like when he's just like staring at the mirror, and it was just so corny. But anyway, uh sorry, I'm going to stop shitting on it so hard. <laughs> I'm so sorry.
2: I wildly disagree with every single thing you said, every word, every single thing you said. And the thing is, here's, here's the thing. Uh, I'm okay. Like, you know, that's your opinion. If you don't like the movie, that's fine. I didn't personally make it. Uh, if you don't like it, it doesn't affect me in any way. I know that's not the right answer to say in a YouTube show, but that's the way I view things. It's like, if you have a different opinion, that's cool. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't bother me at all. I personally, uh, love this movie. And, I I'll, I'll I'll probably admit like part of it is maybe uh I'm looking at this with rose tinted glasses uh kind of thing but um like I I think I think he was the perfect director for this movie because he knew the material way better than any other director that could have been hired to do it whether they're confident or experienced or you know new camera angles like he and I'll give you an example like the very first shot was uh the shot of Donnie on his bike and where it's a steady camp shot and it kind of uh dollies over and you see the profile of Donnie Darko, and then it, it like you know, scoops around again, and then you see the marine layer of uh you know the hills, and you have the music and the killing moon and him, the steady camp going down on the bike. That all was was him. That was like his very first shot filming uh this movie, and like that shot itself is so visually beautiful and striking, and in fact that marine layer and the sunset – or the sunrise, I thought it was a matte painting because it was so beautiful, way beautiful than I um, could envision. But it actually was a real shot. It really happened. There's no CGI, no trick, nothing to create that shot. Another thing is the uh, the opening school shot with the um, head over heels by Tears of Fears where the camera rotates – and it's steady cam kind of follows all the characters and introduces through no dialogue whatsoever. It introduces all the characters and really gets a sense of who they are based on, you know, their facial expressions, the way they interact with other people, like uh, Mrs. Farmer, the way she's judging, uh, you know, the bullies. And you see the principal and he's guiding Drew Barrymore, and they're introducing Patrick Swayze, and it's like this really beautiful like five minute segment that says so much with no dialogue. And so you really have an understanding of who these characters are before they even say anything. Um, So it really like builds this really fantastic world right off the bat. Can I ask you, what uh, do you
0: think of the multiple uses of that then? Because that's one of the things that I thought was a good introduction, but then it became a bit redundant in the film, where you have a couple of examples where it's like the, for lack of a better way to put it, the music video segments it then happened do you think that
2: oh like like the notorious scene where the kids are dancing or yeah and there's, or a, couple, there's a couple
0: different times where there's segments like that over those 80s songs throughout the film that are peppered in there
2: i feel like it's it's very much uh a product of its time you know cuz that was the 80s like when you turn on the tv you're usually watching vh1 or mtv and you're watching music videos that are expressing their story through images and lights and and not really dialogue so it's like Kind of a subtle uh, expression of what the '80s were and how they were, how how the '80 was at that time. And so, I think it's actually very clever to do that—to have these segments that are basically music videos integrated into the narrative of, of the movie.
1: I, I'm not trying to shit on this movie. I, I I promise, I'm really not trying to. But like, I feel like American Beauty and Requiem for a Dream did the exact same thing, and more and more effectively. And like, and I think that there are other movies that, ha- that had come out, prior to this movie, that did the exact same thing. And even movies in the '80s and '90s loved the Steadicam craziness thing because that was when everything was essentially perfected. And I feel like a lot of movies, a lot of dramas, were shot this way. And like I said, most notoriously, American Beauty. I think. And like, I, I, I well, that's my, that's my complaint though. Is like this borrows well, so I mean, that, much. That's the
2: thing is, like, I, I feel like this the use of Steadicam gives a sense of intimacy with the characters because essentially you're like peeking into their life and you're really getting an understanding of the dynamics between Donnie and his sister and his mom. And, and so you're really like, like, I like the way the camera moves because it gives you a sense of like the, the whole room and like the, a sense of uh like the placement of all the characters. And it's, it's almost like, I, I view it as like, you're almost like a, um, Like, you're, or you're a voyeur into this, like, into this very intimate moment of these characters' lives. Like, you almost become a character yourself in the, in the movie. And, and so, and I just feel like the characters themselves are very, like, authentic and damaged and, uh, rough and, and they feel very, um, I don't know, they just really resonate with me, um, in ways that characters don't usually do, um, You know, so I honestly, like, I have, like, even like Drew Barrymore, I I really like her performance in that she's kind of the, 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 the segue between the older generation, like this farmer and the mom dad, uh, and like Patrick Swayze. So, like, she's kind of like the, the, the adult that kind of understands the students and tries to connect with them through, um, uh, Graham Greene, the destructors, but, still has that wall because she's still she's kind of like a uh has one one foot in each world between the 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 Donnie's you know kids Donnie's age and then also the people that are uh you know the adults and so because she's kind of connected the kids in that way and she's able to kind of reach out to them in ways that the the therapist um and even like the parents are not able to uh she gets fired you know like there's a whole controversy about the destructors because the whole um the whole school gets flooded with the water when Donnie, like, you know, breaks the water main. And and it becomes this whole controversy, and essentially she gets fired because of it. Because of this book that's controversial, and the book that gets pulled, because Ms. Farmer is like, uh, you know, she's offended by it. And, like, that itself is something that really resonates nowadays, that when people get offended, oh, it's, this thing is canceled, like, we can't, like, we need to protect the youth, all that stuff. That's, like, something that still happens to this day. Uh, so there's a lot of themes and a lot of th- things that happen in this movie that still happen to this day and really resonate with me um, and I honestly like I love the score the Michael Andrews sc- score is very unique and moody and subtle and really just
0: yeah The movie yeah, like, think, without a doubt like you can you can hate this movie and just be mesmerized by the music from the pop songs to the score it's just it oh, is fantastic. absolutely like you can't you can judge those things completely separately and love absolute brilliance in the music the top to bottom and- even though, like and I said, those segments might not work for me in the way they work for Paul, but they're executed beautifully. I didn't jump on that earlier, but
2: yeah. But,
0: but go ahead, Paul. You want to talk more about the music? Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah. I, I just like th- I think the music creates a really uh, good atmosphere. And the thing about this movie is, uh, you know, it, it, it is to me like this. It's like perfectly perfect tapestry. Like it works so well together that. Even if you do the additions from the director's cut and you change the music and you change sound effects here and there. Like even the beginning opening shot, they don't have the Killing Moon by Eka and the Bunnymen. They have another song. It kind of unravels it. So for me, the director's cut doesn't work because of that. And also, oh yeah, the director's cut, at least, actually a lot of people like the director's cut more. I dislike it because I feel like it holds your hand through everything. It has pages of uh, the philosophy of time travel. And they try to explain things a little bit more. Um, I think there's, like, really great character moments in the director's cut. Uh, like, there's this moment with um, Donnie and his dad. And, uh, you know, his dad's like, you know, I used to be like you. I used to be crazy when I was your age. Uh, and and then Donnie's like, well, what'd you do? It's like, you know, I just told them to f- go fuck themselves. And it's like this really nice moment between the dad and, and Donnie where in this whole movie... Yeah, we well, that's a good scene, and that would have enhanced the original theatrical cut. And so, you know, I think uh, you know, like, that's the whole theme in that movie, is this generational divide between, you know, this youth that, you know, was, Drew Barrymore so says it's slipping away, that we're losing them to apathy, and uh, you know, and it, it's it's always striking to me how, like, how everybody reacts to Donnie in very different ways. You know, like... Uh, you know, like uh, Mary McDonald, great actress, and I think her, as Rose Darker, she's amazing. She goes to Donny and she's like, "What did he toilet paper the, the neighbor's house?" Like, what? I don't recognize my son. Who are you? And and and, and he's like upset because he's doesn't. He's like, "Leave me alone!" Like, I, I'll do what I want to do. And she walks out, and he goes, "Bitch!" And she gets hurt. But it's like that's just a very specific, humane thing. Like that, that happened. That happened a lot in my childhood where I lashed out. And said something hurtful to my parents, uh, just when they were start trying to reach out to me and connect with me. And I, I kind of, uh, responded in like a caustic, abrasive way because I was a teenager and I was kind of a shithole. Yeah, you know, I'm a shithead, you know, uh, cause, you know, teenagers are, they're, yeah, they're like full of emotions. They don't have to know how to process their feelings and, and hormones and everything. And so, like, that's a very specific thing that really resonated with me. And here's the thing here, like, again, what one of the them is generational divide and like, um, I the reason why I'm so attached to this movie, I'll, I'll explain why I'm so attached to this movie and because I could talk about camera angles and all that shit, you know, for, day, for days, but the reason why is because I saw this movie, uh, on DVD and I was at home, uh, it was during like winter break or something, and uh, my dad, uh, he's, um, you know, I, I, I had an old dad and he was born in like, uh, Germany, uh, like post-war Germany after World War II. And he's he's like, I always had, I had problems connecting with him. Like I didn't know like how to, like I would try to talk to him and he would say like, oh, you know, times were tough. And that's all he would say. Like he's not a very, uh, you know, verbose person. Like he, a lot of what he says is very guarded. And so, you know, he went to check on me. He came in my bedroom and I was watching Darny Darko and he's like hovering over and he's just watching it. And he's like kind of just hovering over chair and watching and I was watching it. I was like, hey, Dad, what's going on? He's like, oh, uh, hold on. And he's always watching it. And then he like takes the time to like, take a chair and put the chair down. And he sits next to me, and he watches it. And he watched the whole movie. And I go ahead and ask him. It's like, hey, Dad, did you like it? What do you think? He's like, oh, uh, it's good. Uh, it's good. And, uh, you know, puts the chair away, and he walks out. And right there is, like, the ultimate compliment. Like, my dad... Didn't like a lot of the things that I liked, but we had that moment where he enjoyed something that I really loved at the same time. Like we had that connection. Uh, and, you know, I miss my dad. He passed away about five years ago. Um, but I, I just like that moment right there. It, it's like it's a good memory. And so I tie it to this film. And so I'm so. I, I, I don't know. It, it's. And I'm I'm glad I was able to say that without like tearing up or anything. But I, I it really this mo that this movie like really resonates with me, and I, it, it has a good memory of my dad. And so I I'm so I'll be admit I, I'm so biased. Like I I don't see the flaws in this movie as much as I, I want to in a way. Uh, but yeah, and sorry. I'll,
0: have you go read ahead. Paul? Have you read the the Graham Greene short story The Destructors?
2: No, no, I haven't. Have read it? I haven't
0: I think you should read it, especially understanding uh the time your dad grew up. It's set in I think like london post war but it mm-hmm. kind of reflects being a, essentially a child born out of some kind of that kind of destruction and when that's the world around you, and that's why the idea that they are the destructors like, sounds like a truth way I said it sounds like a transformer, yeah. which is very paul um. <laughs> Unicron, Unicron all up in the yeah. house, right, Paul?
2: <laughs> I know, right, right behind me. So, I tripped over that the other day, by the way. The <laughs> giant so
0: Unicron has laptops. Yeah. If you don't know what that is, look it up. Paul has one, and we're going to open it together. Yeah, it's bit. ridiculous. But uh, the, I think that that story would help you see maybe a window into at least a similar world to the one your dad actually grew up in, just having read it. So uh, that said, but I think... Um, You know, thank you for sharing that. That's always, and and that's why I love when we do this, and I love talking about these guys with film, because it's kind of why these things matter, why film matters. It's not just an artifact of a movie. It's an experience, an emotional experience, greater life. And that's why the best and worst of film, it's always an amazing achievement, because this film even if you dislike it you have to admit it's it's an artistic endeavor and it tries like hell and i and i respect that i think it just to me it's it's a it's a bunch of ideas and themes that they maybe almost too much that then it doesn't get to to really examine any of them as much as it should and then it that, that confuses the through line of the actual narrative story so that hurts it but at the same time when you rewatch it and you kind of deconstruct it it's also enriches that experience. Although I can also see why Tyler like doesn't like rewatching it cuz I hate rewatching the scenes, not all the scenes in therapy, but those are not my favorite scenes. And I just especially the uh Christina Applegate scene, I don't even want to like go into it. I hate that scene. I think that that scene does not need to be in the film and that's like it doesn't move the story further. It's just it's it's there to get you to talk about that scene. But I'm I'm sort of sliding, digressing here because I I want to use this to talk about this is the beauty of cinema, this is what it can do. Whether you love a movie A or movie B or don't, it's when you share that experience with someone. And I can think of other examples of film like that in my life, like with Paul, and moments with my dad are similarly few and far between. I I, I am very thankful to still have my dad. I'll say that, but. And maybe I, and I just, I pray that maybe I get a chance for a few more moments like that. And COVID's really sucked because my dad hasn't met my, um, youngest daughter. She's 18 months old and he hasn't met her. That kills me. Um, but all that said, I'm gonna get the teary eyed one. It's just the beauty of film is here in this movie because it tries to say something. And I, and I, and I completely respect if you hate it. And I completely respect if you love it. And that's a weird thing about it. Because I get it. I can Because I see it through more of a, a... Sort of a measured lens, I guess. Even though I saw it at the time, I didn't have a deeper connection to it. I enjoyed it. And it just kind of like... And then it went away for me. And then it came back on DVD. And it was a topic of conversation. But at the same time... I think of countless moments. You know, moments with Judy. Moments with friends of mine. Watching a movie... Maybe unexpectedly, I, I remember watching with my friend Watson, who this is probably the last movie we saw together not too long before this, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zisu In that moment, at the end, when everybody puts their hands on Bill Murray, and I felt with my friend, who's still a great friend to me today, we haven't seen each other in a while, but we, we, were on a, we always communicate with a group of friends in a text. And that's one of those moments like that with Paul, where I felt with my friend that are like you know like his hands on my shoulders and like sort of like that emotional spiritual sense and that's why i love sharing the the, these conversations with you because when i get to hear that from paul i feel that man and that's why i write when i write kids have slowed down that process because even in a when i when i can connect in a movie that i don't love that's when it's amazing and powerful when it's a movie i love it's easy you know empire strikes back it's me certain other movies like almost famous is a movie from this time frame that really influenced me as a person but uh there's and there's a million more but when i think about that and now i love that i'll watch this movie in the future and it'll resonate in a new way that i hope anybody out there watching can 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 have a, that feeling connected through Paul, and I think that's a little bit of the theme of the movie because you have Donnie Darko, who is this character who's very disconnected from the world. And one thing I thought the movie did do well is he finds connection through Jenna Malone's character. Her name's escaping me, the character name, but oh, through- Gretchen Ross, Gretchen Ross, yeah, through her character, he finds a reason to care about the world. He's holding Caulfield. But he finds that attachment. I think in Holden Caulfield, it's kind of like his sister is his sort of attachment to the world kind of thing. And so I think that if you love a movie or hate a movie, the lesson is to understand the power of any film that can have to, to push the dial forward in a personal level in your life and move you and help you see things in a way you haven't before. And I think this movie does that on its own merits, aside from that kind of story.
2: I think what's what's interesting about this movie is like it feels like the very last scene that they shot was uh, the shot of, of Donnie Darko or he was burning Jim Cunningham's house and it's all flaming up and he walks away. That was the very last scene. And that really resonated with the destructors, like, you know, destruction as a form of creation. And so it, in a way that that the fact that, that was the last scene film, that was like it was very poetic and, uh, you know, I, something I have to share, and honestly, um, the whole desire to analyze and deconstruct the film and understand the hidden meaning, camera angles, everything. My love of film really, really starts – like, I love to move, like, Back to Future and things like that. But my, my ability – like, wanting to go deeper into the production all that stuff started with this film. Started with this one. And honestly, if it wasn't for this film, there would be no popmosis. Like, I, I wouldn't have – any kind of interest in, in really analyzing film in the way we do. And I wouldn't have had the conversation with Josiah that I had without this movie. Like this, I realized watching it that this is the beginning. This is where, you know, 19 year old me was like, hey, movies, there's much more to film than just watching and enjoying them. You know, so, yeah, without Donnie Darko, there's no Potmosis. This movie is exceptionally important to me. And, uh, I, I, you know, I recommend you check it out, uh, and form your own opinion, you know, um, you probably, we're probably all the spectrum of that opinion, but form your own opinion and see what you think. And let us know on the comments or subscribe or, you know, do all that stuff. Just let us know what you think about this movie, because I really would love to hear your interpretation because it's, er it's always very unique to the person that's watching the film.
1: And on that note, Josiah, where can they find more?
0: You, you can find me at, on YouTube and Instagram, mostly YouTube, but well, probably mostly on Instagram. But YouTube is where like you get stuff like this, similar content, and also a lot of toy stuff. But Josiah is right, W R I T E, and be sure to subscribe to both channels to be entered into uh, our t-shirt contest. You could win a t-shirt like this. I got my Gathering shirt on today, so you could win a Grand Geek Gathering t-shirt. Be subscribed to me, uh, Josiah is right, and be subscribed uh, here on the Grand Geek Gathering. All right,
2: and Paul. Oh, uh I'm on Instagram as Arcade Blackfire and uh yeah.
1: And thanks for listening in. you can check out all of our shows and offerings on the com. Please go ahead and subscribe and also like the video that helps us out so much and we have other podcasts on our YouTube channel and also on every single podcast app and our on our website we have articles and so much more as well. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We also have our own Discord, and I stream on Twitch where we have Marvel Talkbacks. I will stream while I edit, and we have some other shows that are actually like live, and then we put them oh. out on podcast apps and stuff like that, like our show anyway.
2: I forgot to mention this, so oh, there you go.
0: And we end with a sign, Donnie Darko.
1: <laughs> yep. Have a wonderful week. Wear a mask, and GGG.
0: What's on the silver screen? They do what I believe